Let me just say, how dare you, Levi? <laughs> my entire podcast and all of my appearances on this podcast are entirely due to and dedicated to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, the uh, the illusion has been broken. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Intervention Podcast. It's Nick here with Steve and Levi. We're also joined by our stand-in for the Reading Marks series, Mike from Turn Leftist. How you doing, buddy? Hello. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime, man. Yeah, so tonight we're really here to, I guess, change the pace a little bit. We're still reading Marx as part of our theory analysis series here. But we've been talking about this piece for quite a while now, bringing up different quotes. And it just seemed like the right time to kind of tackle it. So we're going to be talking about the 18th Rumaire of Louis Bonaparte, um, written by Marx. So we're going to change up, take a break before we dive into Mark's chapter 15 on machinery and uh, tackle this, I think, one of our favorite pieces of Marx's work, at least some of us I know we've talked about before. So with that, I'll turn it right over to Levi. Karl Marx wrote Der Achsen Brumaire de Louis Bonaparte, the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, in late 1851 through early 1852, less than a year after the final acts of the history itself. The booklet made up the first edition of Die Revolution, a German-language revolutionary journal published in the United States by an exiled expat. The work languished unread for years. It wasn't even translated into French, in spite of the great general interest in the topic. Marx cut an edited passage from the document for its republication in 1869. It's this edition which made up most subsequent translations ready-made for Marx's sudden popularity, which coincided with the rise of the Paris Commune in 1871. Writing on the popularity of the work, Robert C. Tucker wrote in 1972 that the 18th Brumaire grew to be, quote, seen as a forerunner of the phenomena that was to become known in the 20th century as fascism. Although the 18th Brumaire gained notoriety in the 1920s to explain fascism, the work already provided an explanation for populist leaders who appeared to rise democratically on the promise of ending democracy. Writing in 1898, translator Daniel de Leon, in his introduction to the booklet, drew the connection to, quote, the recent populist uprisings, the more recent Debs movement, the thousand and one utopian and chimerical notions that are flaring up, the capitalist maneuvers, and the hopeless, helpless grasping after straws that characterized the conduct of the bulk of the working class, end quote. In 1913, publisher Charles H. Kerr noted in his preface that the work helps make sense of, quote, the spectacular figure of Theodore Roosevelt because of his striking parallel to that of Napoleon the Little, end quote. Writing from 1926, translators Eden and Cedar Paul concluded, quote, Louis Bonaparte and the Society of December the 10th, may be regarded as foreshadowings of Mussolini and the fascist organization, end quote, which rose to power a mere four years prior to their writing. Jumping ahead, Sam Miller in Harrison Fluss's 2016 piece entitled The 18th Brumaire of Donald J. Trump argued, Trump's rise mirrors the political phenomena of Bonapartism. Since its republication, people have turned again and again to the 18th Brumaire as a North Star to help understand the farcical nature of history. 
in the 1869 preface to the work, Marx noted his history had only two rivals, one by Victor Hugo and one by Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. Quote, Hugo sees in Napoleon's coup only the violent act of a single individual. He does not notice that he makes the individual great instead of little by ascribing to him a personal power of initiative unparalleled in world history. Proudhon, for his part, seeks to represent the coup d'etat as the result of an antecedent historical development. Inadvertently, however, his historical construction of the coup d'etat becomes a historical apologia for its hero. I, on the contrary, demonstrate how the class struggle in France created circumstances and relationships that made it possible for a grotesque mediocrity to play a hero's part. End quote. This work represented among Marx's clearest drafts of the materialist conception of history and an early articulation of a Marxist history from below, or people's history. Rather than the conception of Marx's method made by crude Marxists, or anti-Marxists as it might be, which argued that he wrote of the simple structure of the proletariat struggling against the bourgeoisie. The 18th Brumaire demonstrated the whirling contingencies and contradictions of a material view of history. It is not a romantic or triumphant history, but rather an attempt at an honest analysis of the failures of a movement to capture the limits of working-class agency in a particular moment. Marx detailed the complex political economy of the landed aristocracy, commercial capitalists, industrialists, early financial interests, the petite bourgeois, the peasantry, the lumpen proletariat, and of course, the working class. Each contained their own past, their own circumstances already existing, within which they made their own history. The complex class struggle both between and within, in addition to the alliances throughout this history, are presented in an attempt to understand the limits and lessons of a failed proletarian revolution within a burgeoning bourgeois society. It's fair to argue the 18th Brumaire is hard to read, and that Marx, at times, slipped into the dense, sleep-inducing monotony we all know him for. But this piece also proved his abilities as an artist. Die Zeit, a German paper of record, even listed the 18th Brumaire among the top 100 works of world literature, right next to Moby Dick. I've done my best to capture the literary style and the quotations I've chosen to highlight. At the same time, it's important to note that in its original form, the audience would have been familiar with the details of the Second French Revolution and its dissolution into the Second French Empire. The history is important and deserves careful attention. But instead of embarrassing myself by attempting to tell that history, I'll instead reiterate the reason we started this reading series in the first place. I suggest we read the 18th Brumaire on its own terms rather than on Marx's terms. If those terms happen to be inspired by Mao Zedong, the Black Panthers, Ho Chi Minh, or even Edmund Burke, so be it. I'm Levi, so we can just go around, and if you guys would just share your familiarity with Marx's 18th Brumaire, if any of you have read it before or just read it for the first time for this episode. So I had to read this once before for a history class on theory and method. And this was about all we read of Marx for the entire year uh, in this one particular class. And if you're only going to read one piece of Marx in terms of history, I guess this would be the best one to read because it really does lay out his historical method pretty clearly. 
Yeah, this is the first time I've read it, so it's more fun with, with Marx. This is more fun than Capital. Yeah. <laughs> that was also the impression I had, Levi, ironically from Matt Christman of Chapo. He had mentioned on an episode of theirs, he said, if you're going to read some Marx, or maybe he's even Will, I can't remember. Someone had written to them was when they were answering fan questions and someone wrote to them saying like, what do I read as far as theory? Like what is accessible? And they suggested 18th Brumaire because even if it's like fairly long, I guess it's like still under a hundred pages. And as far as Marx goes, it's not quite as dense and it is readable. Um, even as far as that goes, I'm still listening to it in audio form because that's how I better absorb things. And then also accompanying that with like podcasts and other YouTube people that like discuss it afterwards and, break down the important themes because I know this is how I tend to absorb theory the best, but yeah, I feel like this is one of those kind of really accessible and like, what's the word for something that like really embodies someone's like personality and their message. It's like, like a uh, microcosm of, of Marx's work entirely. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I completely agree. And a lot of abridgments of this piece actually only contain the introduction chapter and the conclusion chapter and just cut out all of the actual history of the French revolution. And although, of course, I like reading Marx in the original, I think you get just as much of the theory just by reading the introduction and conclusion. So it's a really great, concise piece in that way. Yeah. So for me, I think this was one of the, and Mike, I may have gotten that same recommendation, I can't remember, but this was one of the first, I think, pieces of theory that I really tried to engage with. I think it was like back in our DSA days, Levi, but just again, trying to understand fascism, I was probably a little bit hung up on Trump, but you know, I remember getting into it a little bit and in particular, and we'll talk about this, I think in our second episode on this, but like the chapter two, when he's really lying out like the class dynamics that were part of the rise of Louis Napoleon. And I just remember thinking that there, there's a lot of parallels here. There's stuff we can learn. It's obviously not one-to-one, but you know, there's stuff that we can learn learn and grapple with parallels in our present moment. But I actually stopped um, reading it because I was like, I think I could benefit from getting a little bit more of the historical context for when Marx was writing this just to kind of understand what he's talking about. So again, like not to embarrass myself because I couldn't do it any better than you, Levi, but there was just a couple bullet points, I think, in the history that might be helpful for people just to keep in mind as we kind of square this and as we talk about the text. Because I think first and foremost, you have to understand that the time period that Marx is describing here is really a continuation of the dialectic of revolution and counter-revolution in France, the first phase of which, I mean, just because we have to pick a start point, began in 1789 with the revolution that overthrew the Ancien Regime and ended with the ascension of Napoleon Bonaparte as emperor of France. Because again, that's, this is not like a discrete event. It, all that history is important to this moment as well. So, you know, moving past that, there was obviously clear reactionary elements that won out that led to the formation of the first French empire. But many of the radical, if still bourgeois, elements and ideals persisted that were kind of a carryover from the more radical elements of the initial phase of the revolution, right? So then, you know, you have Napoleon and the French army spreading freedom and democracy TM throughout Europe until his first defeat by the Russian winter, and then again, ultimately at Waterloo, right? So that's in around 1815. But, you know, joking aside, I, I want to emphasize that there were progressive ideals flowing out of France and taking hold throughout Europe. And it wasn't just Napoleon spreading it. It's again, it's a mass movement. It's ideas that are spreading. It's people like Marx 
Engels, Proudhon, etc. All these guys who, you know, ultimately owe some measure of gratitude in the movements that they're part of to, you know, the ideas of the French Revolution, which is, you know, a result of the Enlightenment in a lot of ways. But in any case, you know, it's too much history to get into. So just again, for some broad strokes, turbulence is kind of roiling France throughout the revolution and post-Napoleon. So the intervening years saw the restoration of the Bourbon dynasty by the allies who defeated Napoleon, the ascension of the Orleanist dynasty or the July monarchy in 1830, the proletarian revolution, which is kind of a subject here in 1848, and finally the subsequent rise of the farcical Louis Napoleon and the second French empire in 1851. So I think, you know, reading this work gives you a clear picture of the class power tied to each of these regimes slash revolutionary forces. But just suffice it to say here that the Bourbons really could never shake their feudal ties to the landed aristocracy even during that restoration. The Orleanists came along and attached themselves more so to the burgeoning big bourgeoisie, the, you know, financial interests, right? And then, you know, the roles of the proletarians and the lumpen proles and their relationship to other classes through these years is really, I think, the main subject of this text. But again, to go back to the French spreading that freedom and democracy, I am being serious when I talk about the importance of the ideals of the French Revolution to both the bourgeoisie and the proletariat of Europe on the whole, leading up to 1848. Because again, this was a year of extreme importance in the history of Europe. And each of these classes really at this time had a vested interest in throwing off the yoke of monarchical rule, you know, from the Kaiser to the Habsburgs. And you know, again, to make a long story short, for various reasons, the revolutions were categorically crushed, though the bourgeoisie of Europe undoubtedly came out looking better than the proletariat. So in brief, pre-1848, as we talk about Marx's work in the times he was writing in and what he produced during these times, pre-1848 France and Europe broadly was the powder keg which produced the polemical chain-rattling specter of the manifesto of the Communist Party. And the text we're about to deal with is Marx's Kind of picking up the pieces post-catastrophe. Oh, yeah, dude. That was very concise. I like that. Thank you. Did you see, I guess, Apple TV are making a Napoleon series with Joaquin Phoenix playing Napoleon? It'll just be interesting to see how they portray that. No doubt you've seen the chaos in the streets. We must make an example or France will fall. What would you do if this assignment of defense was transferred to you? I promise you brilliant successes. I'm sure it'll be. But the good one, pretty, right? He's like first Napoleon. The comp- not the good one, the competent one, I'll say. Sorry. <laughs> I think it'll be yeah. pretty interesting, though. I mean, the, the history is always interesting. But again, I think they're doing the great man thing where they're portraying yep. it from the perspective of like, this is what's going on in his love life and how that's affecting him like mentally through that. So while, again, we'll probably see some cool shit, they're going to be focused on the guy and his personal life you know, <laughs> rather than the movements of, you know, this time in Europe. It's obviously like focused on him, the trailer I saw, but there's something like He's like, he says something like, everyone makes mistakes except for me or some shit like that. So. I'm the first to admit when I make a mistake. I simply never do. I just know that there's already a lot of hype about it. So this kind of piece might inoculate us a little bit in terms of the conversations that are going to be coming up around it. Because I know it's going to be coming up over and over again. 
was Napoleon a great man or not, when the reality is he wasn't there by himself. He was, at best, the head of something that was actually a popular movement across Europe. People actually were trying to overthrow feudalism and go into liberal democracy. I mean, as Nick described it, the trademark of freedom and democracy is true. Something really was going on there. At the very least, he was emancipating uh, various populations across Europe to allow them to participate in the politics of their local nation in extremely limited ways, but in ways that, in context, can be considered liberatory. But that's always important, is the context. I'm just calling it now, Nick. There's going to be some liberal takes, since you just mentioned that the series is going to focus on like Napoleon's love life. There's going to be some liberal tweets about how all of like Napoleonic wars could have been avoided if they had had Viagra at that time or something. Like it's all going to come down to great man theory and just like his dick not working. Just some like just like Pooler today. It's yeah, just like all the speakers, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, back and forth. I mean, the liberals and the conservatives are going to fawn over the idea of Napoleon and claiming his good parts and discrediting his bad as somehow the other person or the other side's fault. Even though Napoleon is as much as any other great leader of that time, just an embodiment of the rise of liberalism itself. I mean, I'm sure the Napoleon and Trump comparisons have been happening since 2016, but they're just going to get really popular around that time. As a discrete polemic, Marx made concrete contemporary political conclusions worth interrogating critically. I'll lay out three concepts before bringing them together into a large question I'd like to wrestle with as we work through this piece. The first, Marx's conception of the petite bourgeois. Petite bourgeois literally meant the little bourgeois and represented small business owners and self-employed artisans. Those trades which might have autonomy and may even own their own means of production but still do the work themselves or often need to exploit themselves alongside the few workers in their employ. As far as I'm aware, Marx nor Engels defined what they meant by the petite bourgeois ideology as it differed from the bourgeoisie ideology. But Abraham Lincoln, in his 1859 address before the Wisconsin State Agricultural Society, provided a pretty good jingoistic definition. Quote, The prudent, penniless beginner in the world labors for wages a while saves a surplus with which to buy tools or land for himself, then labors on his own account another while, and at length hires another new beginner to help him. This, say its advocates, is free labor, the just and generous, the prosperous system, which opens the way for all, gives hope to all, and energy and progress and improvement of conditions to all. If any continue through life in the condition of the hired laborer, It is not the fault of the system, but because of either a dependent nature which prefers it, or improvidence, folly, or singular misfortune. Does this sound familiar to anybody? I love that singular misfortune. If you don't succeed, it's your fault. Yep. Even in Lincoln's time, this ideology represented a myth. But it was a myth which enraptured many around the world. Second, Marx's conception of the lumpen proletariat. Lumpen proletariat appeared to be a word coined by Marx and Engels sometime in the 1840s and is a classic German smashing together of two words, lumpen meaning rags and proletariat. Marx and Engels defined and refined their understanding of the lumpen proletariat throughout their lives. At the end of part one, 
of Marx and Engels' 1848 work, Manifesto of the Communist Party, they wrote, the dangerous class, lumpen proletariat, the social scum, that passively rotting mass thrown off by the lowest layers of the old society may, here and there, be swept into the movement by a proletarian revolution. Its conditions of life, however, prepare it far more for the part of a bribed tool of reactionary intrigue, end quote. Can I just give like begrudging credit to George Orwell for coining the term proles? Because I think that that like sticks in people's minds, at least in like the West, it rolls off the tongue really well. And if you read 1984, which everyone was forced to do, you can imagine the proles as these exactly lumber proletariat that Marx and Engels would have tried to lead you to believe that they are. I mean, just they are the, the unwashed masses. Like it's the exact perfect description that he gives in 1984. The imagery is helpful. Yeah. He was certainly a master of his craft. I like that you mentioned um, Melville at the beginning, Levi. Marx is not somebody I would consider like a good writer or somebody that I would want to read for his like, I don't know, just like good language. But like the 18th premiere, even, even as I've been listening to it, is a little better than fucking Das Capital for sure. He was definitely capable of doing artistic writing, although he clearly saw that it got in the way of a lot of his um, sleep-inducing use of math and figures and dates. But he was a man of his time. You're not thrilled by Yards of Linen, Levi? Come on. (laughs) I think I prefer the Yards of Linen sometimes. But in 1867's Capital Volume 1, Marx further defined the lumpen proletariat as, quote, the lowest sediment of the relative surplus population which dwells in the sphere of pauperism, apart from vagabonds, criminals, prostitutes, end quote. Marx, in chapter 5 of the 18th Premiere, bestowed the crown of, quote, chief of the lumpen proletariat squarely upon Louis Bonaparte because he recognized, quote, in the scum, awful, refuse of all classes, the only class which he could base himself unconditionally, end quote. Third, Marx argued the peasantry, the lumpen proletariat, and the unawakened members of the working class are together counter-revolutionary forces which fell prey to the promises of the petite bourgeois ideology. Marx and Engels also argued the proletarianization of the peasantry led to their absorption within the working class. As we'll read in the next Capital Reading, Chapter 15 on Technology, Marx also argued the transition to large-scale industrial-based manufacturing would, like the absorption of peasantry into the working class, dismantle the petty bourgeoisie over time. I'm extrapolating here, but it seems reasonable to assume that as the entire population became subsumed, the influence of the lumpen proletariat and petite bourgeois would diminish. But, I would argue anyway, this is not the trajectory which modern capitalism has taken. Finally, I've got a few questions that ran through my mind reading this that I hope we can bring to bear on the quotations I highlight throughout. So how does this history, which plays a lot with inevitabilities which have not come to pass, affect the concept of agency we've brought up time and again on other episodes when referencing this work, how history actually plays out? How does this, or rather does this, reflect on struggles of reform and revolution? For example, would this understanding influence the support for state concessions which lift workers out of the lumpen proletariat? Or is this, quote, rotting mass an unapproachable counter-revolutionary force? 
keep in mind the method here, right? Marx is describing these classes as he sees them in this moment, right? And I think you can still apply like a broad definitional analysis, but like the factors that lead to someone being a lumpen prole, especially in the United States of America today, could be very different than what led them to be a lumpen prole in France in 1848, 1851. And those conditions that led to that could lead to a very different ideology. I do think that there are some broad strokes that you can still apply and say, hey, this is like a parallel that we see. This might be something that we have to be careful of as we're analyzing this class and like what their role could be. But I really do think that it's you can't take this and just apply this class analysis as a broad brush and match it up perfectly onto the society that we're living in today. So just keep in mind the method and that all this is very dynamic while still using the general guidelines. No, it's perfect. I mean, that's a really important takeaway from this is that you can apply general lessons. It may not be direct parallels one-to-one. It may not be as easy of a allegory as 1984, bring that up again. But yeah, it may require some kind of nuanced thought. The main message I take away from this is that revolutions are not inherently good and they require human action like as much as we again like to pretend that communism is inevitable or like to take accelerationist stances or just meme about it uh, there is no inevitability to the end of capitalism all of this requires not only human action but well-directed and intelligently directed human action because i think that this shows very easily or how a revolution or any kind of radical movement can very easily fall into reaction i feel like marx was encountering this maybe Maybe not for the first time, but like he encountered this a couple times in his life because he happened to live through a lot of political turmoil and see a lot of revolutions happen. And so even though he supported a lot of things initially, he had the knowledge to withdraw that support when he could see things going in the wrong direction. And that's like what we should do as principled Marxists. And I think there is some tension on the left, at least in some circles, to want to defend Marx through and through as though he was some sort of great man that just had it all figured out. Whereas what I think Nick and you are both saying is that he got a ton of things wrong. He misunderstood some concepts because he was within that history that he was writing about. No one person can be completely involved or in just understanding every aspect of a movement that's literally unfolding before them. And it gets to the reality that Marx himself changed over time. I even going over the definitions that he gives of lumpen proletariat, they're not the same in 1848 as they would become in 1866 as they would become closer to his death when he was interested in the revolutionary potential in Russia. Just on top of the fact that just because somebody can be defined as lumpen proletariat and peasantry in 1848 versus 2023 doesn't mean they have the same ideology or view on life and in the world themselves. Exactly. So another big question. There is some irony that it seems every few years, some leftist publishes a piece saying, this is just like the Brumaire. What aren't we learning that's forcing us to relive this farce over and over and over again? Is how I've laid out any of this logic here seem contradictory or conflict with anybody else's reading or how they understand the Brumaire? I would just add that I think that this sentiment comes from a lot of like Western left spaces. And I think, again, without getting too into it, I think it's because in some circles on the Western left, there's a refusal to learn some of the lessons about like protecting the revolution that come from places outside of the West. Definitely true. But I also think I take from this that it's like really difficult to thread the needle 
of a revolution. Like we've talked before about commandism and tailism. I think what you're describing is also, it's called tailism, right? Where you tail the, the people. Cause it's like, if you're talking about the mass line thing, um, it's where you are behind the people or like, you know, reiterating the, the cultural struggle as opposed to like trying to reform it to be more progressive. But then there's also, I, th- I don't want to say it's called headism. I think that's, that's the wrong, but it's like, it's the opposite thing. It's like literally like you're saying, being too condescending, like you're too far ahead of the people and you're trying to make them progress too much. And I guess it spawns too much of a reaction and your revolution crumbles. And it's funny because whether or not you are a tailist or a headist or whatever the proper term is, uh, seems to only be determined after the fact by how successful or not your revolutionary project was. I'll allow myself to sound stupid and say that it was headism, um, but it was it's commandism. That's what it is. Headism it is. And it's very easy to fall off the balance beam in either direction. And especially when you have conditions like we're living in today where the people who are in power have absolutely read these texts. They absolutely absorbed these messages for all the wrong reasons. Like they know Das Kapital, they know the 18th Premier, and they know how to use these things and these forces to keep the status quo existing. And so, I mean, it literally is just illegal. Like if you wanted to try and start a revolutionary movement in the US, how do you navigate those conditions in the modern world? And you, you can look at all the lessons, you can read as much theory as you want, but it doesn't make it any easier to navigate those real world conditions. And you only know that after the fact, once your movement has succeeded or not. And just, it just is difficult. But I mean, ultimately, Levi, I think, and Mike, that's all really well said. But I think the question you're asking is, is the right one, because, you know, we already talked about people returning to this. So what are we missing? And how can we apply it dynamically to our time, if at all? Which I think we can, but I mean, you have to ask, is it still applicable too with all this stuff, right? Right. I mean, that's on top of it. What makes this even more complicated is that Marx, in spite of what some bad Marxists might think, did not exactly leave a roadmap on how to accomplish all of these things. They require updating. They require interpretation. He leaves that intentionally vague because he knows that what works in location X is not necessarily going to work in location Y. And I think that's something that's lost when people try to come at Marxism either from the right or without any sort of frame of reference. That Marxism is a method. It's a concept of understanding the world, not necessarily a roadmap for how to create the new world. Well, and that's why I cringe every time I hear the phrase thrown out, Marxist dogma, because dogma is the antithesis of Marxism. Not to say that some leftists can't fall into the trap of treating it as such, as you've already mentioned, but like, I think if we're doing it right, then we need to understand that it is not some rigid pathway. Because first of all, like you said, Marx doesn't give us that rigid pathway. And he's also, along with so many others, very clear that the pathway is conditioned by the foundation of the society upon which you're walking. It's actually just a bad interpretation of it to even say like the Marxist goal would be to overthrow the government per se, because it's like, it's not just that like the, the Marxist goal would be to overthrow the current political and economic order because it's both things entirely. It's the system of production and distribution and also the system of governance as people tend to think of it. So time to get into it. So the work has two bangers right out the gate. It opens quote, Hegel remarks somewhere that all great world historic facts and personages appear, so to speak, twice. He forgot to add, 
the first time as tragedy, the second time as farce, end quote. According to the Marxist.org version of the Brumaire, this comes almost verbatim from the words of Engels to Marx. The very next paragraph, quote, Men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. The tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. And just as they seem to be occupied with revolutionizing themselves and things, creating something that did not exist before, precisely in such epochs of revolutionary crisis, they anxiously conjure up the spirits of the past to their service, borrowing from them names, battle slogans, and costumes in order to present this new scene in world history in time-honored disguise and borrowed language, end quote. So this is as good a place as any for people to bring in their interpretations of this work as these lines may be the best known and best lines in Marx's entire existence. And of course, Engels gets no credit for the first one, but he did write it. The, uh, the tragedy and farce thing, that was him? That was Engels, yeah. It was in a letter that he wrote to Marx and Marx just lifted it right out of it. Damn. We love Freddie, don't we, folks? Have you guys sort of come across this language before even getting deep into Marxism? Because these are sort of the lines that I've heard, even as a kid, vaguely getting into Marx. Like These were the first things I heard. Yeah, I mean, they've definitely transcended beyond just the depths of like studying Marxism into something that's well-known in the culture broadly. Even if you have no idea where that sentiment is coming from, you kind of know the phrase and you get the idea of like what we're talking about here. That first is tragedy, then is farce. It's like there, there's this notion that history repeats itself, right? Just ever present, whatever your ideology is. I mean, it also is the case that people who accede to positions of power look at history and they want to feel like they are part of that. Like people who are in powerful positions want to have a legacy. They want to leave behind something that lives on long after their death and they look to other people who have done that like there are i don't think there are any ceos who don't know who alexander the great is and thinks that they have some kind of connection to that guy it's like you don't like you have an app like it's creepy that you think that but just like the whole roman empire thing that is going around it's kind of getting viral now it's like yeah it's just kind of the conception that people have and it's shitty that people take all their their lessons of history from like the worst parts of it it's like why do you have to take your conceptions of history from like the Roman empire, which was like slave owning and a lot gayer than you're willing to admit. Why not like look at the actual positive lessons of history instead of taking all the worst examples. It's like, yeah, no. And Zuck, I think to your point literally does like fancy himself as like a digital Alexander the great. He even said at one point he got the Caesar haircut intentionally. <laughs> so grotesque. That's creepy stuff. Yeah. I mean, just in terms of like, general interpretations. I, I'll go back to when I spoke about when I first kind of engaged with this text, because I think it was at that point in my own development, I was looking at it like too literally about like how, okay, the farce is explicitly, you know, the rise of fascism in 2020 in America. Right. And then you get into more history and you realize just it's to make a long story short, it's a lot more complicated than that. Right. You know, it's not just Trump getting elected in 2020. A lot of just fascist baggage in America being kind of laid bare at that point in time. Right. So it's, it's much more complex than that. 
I think my interpretation of the work is kind of as we've been talking about is that I think the importance of it is again the method. It's really like a post mortem that Mark's put together that really the history of which spans decades getting into like how the, the class formations that existed at this time ultimately came into being, what the alliances were, who they associated with, what their interests were, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I think just if you can generalize that out to say, okay, if I wanted to apply this method, this is a good blueprint for doing it. It's not going to look the same if I took this and said, okay, I'm going to write a history of the rise of Trump or the rise of Blue MAGA, whatever you want to say. But you could still take this method that Marx puts out here because I think he really blends things we've talked about before, like historical materialism, the dialectical method, class analysis, and he does it and he presents it all in this one short shot to give you a picture of what France looked like in 1851, again, in this kind of like postmortem analysis. I think it sticks with us because we can look at it and say, like, this is a work that would be useful to reproduce in the terms of our society today. And I know that's very broad in general, but I think that's why it really sticks with us. And there's also just no accounting for taste. The fact that this is just such an incredibly well-written theoretical introduction to everything he's going to be laying out. I mean, just that language, the tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. I mean, that's just such an amazing line. And you immediately have a feeling, or at least I do in my gut, that it's true. Mm -hmm. That people constantly gravitate to what they understand to be the history, whether or not it is actually the history. It's the thing that claws at the back of your brain. Well, and I think to go back to the initial presentation of why people are gravitating toward this text when they're trying to understand fascism is because this hearkening back to history, this glorious past, right, to reclaim this glorious past is a hallmark of fascist movements, right? I mean, you know, MAGA is the easy layup of just make America great again because it's right there, but it's present in every fascist movement. Mussolini, and Mike, you mentioned the Roman Empire, this hearkening back, this reclamation of the ancient glory of Rome was a pillar of Mussolini's fascism, right? Which ultimately precipitated an invasion of Africa, right? It's like, we need to reclaim the section of the world that we used to dominate to reclaim our former glory, right? So again, this is where all these ideas in history can be used in a very reactionary way. I think the term you're getting at, Nick, is revanchism. Yeah. It's when you recall like a false history that makes you seem more glorious than you are and then try to recapture that. That whole line about the dead generations and the tradition weighing on people it's just i feel like that's a tolkien line i could really picture that being said by like theoden the other thing i wanted to say is that the reason that it rings so true to people that history repeats itself as a farce is both because it's obvious to people who are in a position of subservience to leaders that the people who are power hungry who are the narcissists at the top that they are trying to emulate previous leaders in the past right like we can all see like we just mentioned Zuckerberg with the obvious haircut and we all get the impression that they're doing it in a shoddy way. Like they're not quite living up to it. The most pro-union president leading the most pro-union administration in American history. And we may also not be being fair to them. Like, I don't think that it's just cope. There's no way that any modern leader could live up to the impression that you have of a previous 
great man of history simply because they are not a real person. Like you don't picture Caesar going to the bathroom. Marx is clever to point it out either way. And I love that like both of those things that you just quoted here, Levi, remind me so much of like other groups that I hate to give credit to, which are right wing think tanks who take what the status quo is and then they put it into like pithy form. And then it seems more true to people just because it's something they've already grown up here their whole lives, which is like, oh, you don't deserve any of my hard earned money that I got any of my hard earned income. It's like, no, you're, you're a billionaire and you've expropriated wealth, but that's much harder to explain. And that's kind of the dilemma that we are always up against as leftists, which is people understand the status quo. And if you just rephrase, well, this is just how things are. And you say it in like a clever way that people kind of like and they can dunk on liberals with it. That's going to get a lot of success and it's going to go viral. Even if it came from like a million dollar think tank, people don't know that. They don't care. People see history kind of, you know, they always say history is written by the winners, right? So you have to search out stuff like this. Most people probably don't. Most normal people aren't going to find Marx and read it. So they're not going to have the understanding that we're trying to, or, or the analysis that we're trying to do now. They're just going to see. So you see what you remember history, what you want to remember. So you know, leaders remember these great men and they want to emulate them. And also you remember what you think is cool. So what we think is cool is a lot different from what other people think is like what these fucking leaders think is cool. So they think, yeah, Caesar was cool or Napoleon was cool and therefore they want to emulate that. I don't think there's a lot of analysis put in by most people when they're looking at this. They, they like, as you guys said, most CEOs, they've all read this, but they're going to take out of it what they want and they're taking out of it as a way to exploit people and to change this into a way that'll help them exploit people coming up with like memes and just getting someone to think your way is a way to change people's idea of things. Whereas yeah, exactly what think tanks would do. So I think, yeah, that, that's a good way to put it. These are so cool, bro. I love getting stabbed by all my closest friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny how most of these great men end up getting like fucking killed, right? <laughs> they're just too good for their time. That's why they're persecuting Trump. Mm, exactly. <laughs> At two pence. <laughs> yeah, Judas Pence over here. Anyway, so we're already sort of touching on it. So I'm going to dive into this concept that we're already talking about, the difference between what we call history in terms of the narrative that's passed down to us versus history, which we might think of the world or the events as they actually occurred. It makes it a really complicated concept to talk about in English because we literally use the same word for both. So still early in chapter one, we get what may be the first polemical statement of the work. Quote, The social revolution of the 19th century cannot take its poetry from the past, but only from the future. It cannot begin with itself before it has stripped away all superstition about the past. The former revolutions require recollections of past world history in order to smother their own content. The revolution of the 19th century must let the dead bury their dead in order to arrive at its own content. There, the phase went beyond the content. Here, the content goes beyond the phase. Taken at face value, Marx appeared to argue that the proletariat revolution need not be dogged down by the past, but, as an historian himself, Marx obviously saw a value in understanding the past. What then does he mean in this quotation? What is the use of history if it's not meant to be the poetry of the past? Is he referencing bourgeois great man history rather than the history from below or a new people's history? 
Is there perhaps something lost in translation here? In German, there is a different word for history as written art and history as events of the past. In English, they're both history. For example, this makes the statement said earlier that victors write the history have a double meaning in English, which it simply wouldn't have in German. Does this help justify anybody's interpretation? So we were already touching on this, but when we talk about these history, these figures that these great men are emulating, like Zuckerberg, he's not literally emulating Caesar, right? We can't even imagine Caesar going to the bathroom. He's emulating the narrative of Caesar that's been created over the last how many thousand years. That's not real. It's a story that's been created to understand a very specific way that Caesar is remembered. He's a character. There's the argument that if Caesar came and appeared before us today, somehow speaking English, what we know about him would be incomprehensible to him. And that's the difference between history as narrative and history as reality. And it's hard to bridge the two. And that to me is, I think, what Marx is getting at. Maybe I'm coming at it from like a really different perspective here, but I'm thinking about the importance of history, narrative, and culture as it relates to the success of revolutions. I'm thinking a lot about examples that we have from successful socialist projects of trying to establish like kind of like a new ideology, a new proletarian ideology, right? Like we have example of Kolontai coming up with theories around what the a woman's role would be in the Soviet Union or the role of the family in the Soviet Union under under socialism or Guevara's like socialism and man in Cuba, which posits this idea of the new man. Right. But I, I think those kind of harken back to this idea that Marx is talking about, like that for the revolution that are coming, you ha- kind of have to like put the history and dead traditions kind of behind you in order to forge this new future. Right. You can't get so bogged down in the past because it's almost like it's like we talked about with, you know, Brett, as we've talked about multiple times, like the only way out is through, right? And as long as we keep relying on what happened in the past, we're going to fall into the same traps over and over and over again if we can't establish like a new reality on our own terms to the benefit of the proletariat and a new society and humanity broadly, right? So I guess I'm looking at this as like, Obviously, Marx saw the value of history because you have to look at the real history in terms of like what the events are to actually understand and act within your current moment appropriately. You have to understand why the lumpen proletariat is acting the way it's acting in this moment in order to deal with it and strategize and organize around those conditions that create these realities of a class experience, right? But while you utilize the history, to understand and act, you have to have an eye towards building towards the future. Otherwise, you're going to fall back into reaction. So I'm talking about that on like a broader movement basis, I guess, than we're talking about like with like history and great men. I think it's part of the same conversation, but that's really what I took out of that passage. I agree with that reading. And I, I think it's definitely attached to the theoretical way that I'm thinking about it in terms of the use of history itself. Because even as you sort of articulated it, on the surface, there appears to be a contradiction, right? You don't want to get stuck in the past, keep reliving the experiences of what you understand to be the narrative of reality. You want to somehow work through that in order to understand 
where the future is going to go. And I think to put a point on that contradiction, I think it's actually historicizing the past that makes it easier to get beyond. In the example of the family with Frederick Ingalls, I think is a really good example where we go into this reading thinking about the man and wife and children and the way the nuclear family is set up as being ahistorical, that it just exists. And that is our tradition. And we need to hold on to that no matter what. But the reality is that specific form of the family only exists because it has a history. It's not wedged in nature in a way that's ahistorical. So again, it, it keeps falling into these sort of contradictory languages where we need to understand our past in order to get beyond it. It's funny, Nick, the side point that I was going to make was uh, just a total change. I was going to ask if you guys ever kind of not think about the Roman Empire specifically, but just think about the irony of these people who are just psychopaths in their own time. Like they're just, we call them grandiose narcissists when they're alive. They have no idea. Like Caesar had no idea how long his legacy was going to live on after him. 10 years, a hundred, a couple thousand. But like you said earlier, like if you brought him to today and showed him how they were still talking about him, he'd be blown away by that. But that didn't change his behavior at the time. He just did all the things he did, horrific or not, to gain all that power and had no idea. So it just makes it kind of that much more horrific for me in a way, because I would feel like you should, you should want to know for sure that, it's go, that your legacy is going to live on for thousands of years to do just the atrocities that you would have to do to get that kind of power. But it also makes me think of that's kind of what we need to create the new socialist person or the new socialist character to create that kind of countervailing incentive is like you need to create some kind of other legacy that would appeal to people more. You need to create some kind of other project that people really believe in enough that they want to dedicate their lives to, even if they don't think they're going to see the fruits of it in their own lifetime. And that has to be something that's collectively oriented, which we just do not have now. And I can sort of see why people who are like taking the monarchist direction, when they see instead of an individual, they see like a family carried on after generation because individualism and individual accomplishments maybe are the only maybe are the only thing that they know now so then if they see monarchy that seems like the next logical step is like oh well then i can hand it to my children they could be good leaders and it's just perverse at the same time because it's just obviously those people did not earn the, that power and those accomplishments it's just still really difficult to convince people that a collective vision for humanity would be better than trying to achieve power just for yourself by stepping on other people Mike, those are all good points. And but the other thing I want to bring up, you know, because we've been talking about a lot of like figures in history that we would look at as like very reactionary, right? Like these emperors, these despots. And I, I think we need to emphasize that on the left, while we can certainly admire some of the figures within our tradition, a lot of the figures within our traditions, like Che, uh, Castro, a Stalin, a Luxembourg, you know, the list could go on and on. But there is never going to be another Stalin, another Lenin right? Like no one is going to be that in America in 2023. Hey, we could try. <laughs> right. And there's certain things that we should try, right? That we can take from that. And that's the point is like to learn lessons, then apply them in this context, right? And understanding that they're going to be very different. But like these figures literally cannot exist in the same way because the material conditions are very different, right? So you take the lessons, but to try to like emulate people in like a really rote scripted way, which, you know, again, our understanding of a lot of these figures is very different than the reality to begin with. It's just not something that can happen. 
So to talk about the history and the notion of narrative versus history, just as a little project, if you write in who built the pyramids of Egypt into Google, it will tell you it was Khufu, Khafre, and Menkauri. I guarantee you, none of those men lifted a brick in their lives. <laughs> they didn't build the pyramids, but our history tells us that they did. There's literally hundreds of thousands of men that are left out of that statement when you name those three people. So there's something we have to remember when we're talking about our history and we use these names of great men to describe entire material historical realities. Just real quick, because I think there's a needle to thread here with these figures and like a Zuckerberg, right? In the same way that if shit doesn't change and, you know, we don't get all eaten up by climate catastrophe, but if we don't build a better world... The history is going to be written like Zuckerberg built Facebook. Steve Jobs built the iPhone. There was a Bill Burr clip that I watched recently, right, where he was coming out and talking about it's like, well, where are all these nameless, faceless scientists that actually did the work to do this? But that's the same point, right? Like we will always just say, oh, the great men did this. Musk invented electric cars. Didn't exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But I think it's the same, (laughs) it's the same framing that if we don't change that and uplift the the working class the people that actually built this shit they're going to get left behind with like the slaves of egyptian society back then right in terms of what the historical record actually shows yeah and that builds into a larger political critique of a nation so when we say that i earned all of this i'm the billionaire that made all of this money or earned all of this by doing the the hard labor myself that's intentionally a narrative that's designed to obfuscate the many benefits they gained by being where they are and having what they had at the beginning. As Mike was saying earlier, these think tanks intentionally designed these narratives, these people surrounding them, this PR campaign around every individual that has the ability to hire them, crafts that narrative of coming up from below on their own. They all grasp on that petite bourgeois ideology. It's still incredibly strong today. I don't know any of these billionaires that say outright, yeah, I was born a billionaire and I deserve it because my daddy did it. You know, they don't craft that image. They know that image is toxic as big a reality as it may or may not be. I mean, just like think about anything, you know, in in your life, different places you've lived or different things you've done. You tend to, well, you at least try and remember the good things, right? You don't remember the shitty struggles you had or say you move to a different city. You may like romanticize about where you used to live when you talk about it, different things like that. And I think that is pervasive through all of history and and anything you think about. Like they have those stupid like man on the street talks they have. And there was one that like I saw and obviously they just pick and choose who they're going to show. But they were like, when was America great or whatever? And this guy was like in the in the 40s and the 50s when we all these great men came back from war and we'd saved history. And they were like, we need to go back to that time. And he's like, so like black people shouldn't be allowed to vote anymore. And they're like, well, I didn't mean that. I just mean like, you know, people have these blinders on with history. And if you don't allow yourself to, you know, if you don't immerse yourself in all of the history, you're just going to, again, see the world in blinders. And I think that's kind of what Marx is trying not to do with this. And to talk about those blinders, in spite of the fact that it does seem like these lines are manufactured by think tanks, I think a lot of these people actually do believe that they've earned what they've gotten. There's a famous instance with Mitt Romney where he's speaking to a group of students that he says, quote, Get the education. Borrow money if you have to from your parents. Start a business. Yeah. 
the way he understands money is that it's something your parents give you. He doesn't understand that that's not even an option for most people. My parents couldn't have given me the money to start my own business. That's just not a reality that most people face. So they believe their own narratives. Or at least some of them do. So to get back to the text. Contrasting revolutions of a proletarian character versus bourgeois character, Marx wrote in chapter 1 that the proletariat, quote, constantly criticize themselves, constantly interrupt themselves in their own course, return to the apparently accomplished in order to begin anew. They deride with cruel thoroughness the half-measures, weaknesses, and paltriness of their first attempts, seem to throw down their opponents, only so the latter may draw new strength from the earth and rise before them again, more gigantic than ever, recoil constantly from the indefinite colossalness of their own goals, until a situation is created which makes all turning back impossible. End quote. This may be the most hopeful message of this work, that the proletariat are in constant class struggle, constantly on the edge of revolution, in order to claw concessions from the bourgeoisie. Each revolution might fail. There may be a step back with every two steps forward, but eventually the final revolution will come. This is the argument of reform and revolution, or rather the argument that capitalism needs to get to a certain stage before it can be transformed into socialism. But as it's presented here, doesn't it feel very hopeless? Downtrodden? Defeated? Just thinking about the material conditions, I guess Marx wrote this work after the failure of the revolution of 1848 and the rise of the buffoonish Napoleon III, so it just wasn't a great time to think optimistically as a revolutionary. But I think it's a very realistic assessment that's been kind of borne out here, right? I mean, even on like a very global scale, and I think we have to think in global terms because we live in a globally connected economy, even like the actually existing socialist states participate or would like to participate in this economy at some level, right? But then again, I think this is like why we have to reject this notion that just because the USSR fell, that communism is dead, right? Like we have the example of China, but like even the example of China and Cuba and Vietnam and the DPRK, et cetera, et cetera, aside, I mean, just from this perspective of our project, I mean, you have to just look at it on a very broad basis and say, look, even if you looked at the transition from feudalism to, you know, bourgeois ideology and capitalist ideology in Europe, that happened in fits and starts as well. Right. So the class struggle is going to continue. There's going to be failures. There's going to be massive failures, which in the illegal dissolution of the USSR was. But we're going to keep coming back and we're going to keep fighting because the contradictions are still present within this current mode of production. So, again, it probably was coming from like a kind of a desperate place. But I think it is a very realistic kind of analysis of how this was going to and how it ultimately is kind of playing out in front of our eyes. There's victories and there's defeats. Even on like the domestic level, you know, we had the rise of the labor movement, you know, with obviously the most radical edges blunted down as we're talking about in our New Deal series. We, we saw, you know, some really militant labor unions rise that led to good outcomes for, again, majority white working class in the U.S., right? And we saw neoliberalism crush that beginning under Reagan, really cemented by Clinton. And now we're seeing a resurgence of a more radical, a more socially socially minded labor movement with class consciousness. And that's growing and it's burgeoning. So we're coming back again to fight and we learn and we know more now than we did last time. You know, we don't want to get into a conversation of like, 
inevitability, it is inevitable that material conditions are going to push people to organize and agitate um, and fight for something better for themselves. This is something I think about a lot. Like, just like I kind of get too high and think about <laughs> what's going through the minds of like CEOs and psychopaths now or in history and think about why they would have been doing what they're doing, even not knowing for certain that they're going to have a legacy at all. Um, I think a lot about are there inevitable conditions that lead people to revolt or are there conditions that lead people to revolutionary suicide? Like, what are the conditions that people can be put in where they absolutely will not tolerate anything else? And then I think back to historical events, just like enslaved people, the Holocaust. It's like those things make me really dismal because I see people who are in the absolute worst conditions on a mass scale and they still don't revolt in some kind of way that I guess you would expect them to. Maybe from like this Marx quote who says that I do like this quote, like it is kind of hopeful in a way because he seems to say that inevitably it gets to a condition where people just by their own nature of just kind of needing basic subsistence cannot tolerate a certain condition anymore. But I feel like in certain circumstances, history has shown that that is not the case and people will kind of accept even their own deaths. And I, I'm kind of reminded of like this, I think Gandhi had said like the victims of the Holocaust should have marched straight into the ovens, like just lined up and just marched right into them. And then that would have somehow defeated the Nazis. But like, as always, I think Gandhi was always operating on the false assumptions that like oppressors have humanity that they have any kind of compassion for the people that they're oppressing and they obviously don't like i think the nazis would have been perfectly happy to watch all the jews and lgbt people everyone they were persecuting just march right into the ovens and they would have been happy to let them do it human action and directed human action is required because we can easily fall back into feudalism even slavery right now in the next few generations if not sooner and there is nothing inevitable preventing that and I think to that conversation, Mike, like you could look at the examples of when you have, you know, conditions driving people to act a certain way. And then you add that level of like organization and ideology that people are fighting for. I mean, we incinerated the entire nations of Korea and Vietnam, and those people kept fighting and they were going to keep fighting. And the U.S. acknowledged that eventually they were never going to win because these people were organized and they were fighting for something and they knew what the fuck they were fighting for. Again, like you're saying, it requires both the conditions, the consciousness, and the organization to actually be successful at this at some level. Even in the examples of like the Holocaust and like the slave trade, but people were always searching for ways to organize, right? They're obviously met with resistance, and you have to like kind of formulate your tactics around how that resistance is ultimately going to manifest. But people are going to find ways to survive and improve their lives. You learn from the successes and failures, I guess. First, there's a lot to say about Gandhi as an historical figure. By the end of his life, he considered himself a complete failure as a person and as an activist. He understood in his life and was under constant reflection that he had made mistakes and he died with a lot of regret. But to unpack the history of slavery a little bit, and I think to build off of something that Nick actually said here, how history on the left has understood slavery in the American context is actually really complicated because there is clearly a desire to show and focus on the acts of slaves in their revolt as being something that was typical but not common, that all of these slaves clearly wanted their freedom and would do anything to get their freedom. Therefore, 
it's appropriate to look at the very few revolts in something like Haiti as the one successful revolt as what could have happened at any moment. But then there's the reality that making that claim really actually silences the reality of the live experience that most slaves did not revolt. They didn't get the opportunity to, they didn't get the situation to, they didn't have the circumstances in their lives that allowed them to consider revolt as a realistic option. And I think that's what makes this idea of agency really complicated when we talk about our own history or how we want to construct history. Because it's just as dangerous to say that Napoleon created the circumstances of his own rise as it would be to say the working class at any moment could have stopped him. Because just because they are the largest number in society at any given time doesn't mean that they actually have the wherewithal or the ability to suddenly rise up and create a new society at the drop of a hat. That agency doesn't necessarily exist at any given time. And that's where, even going back to the first sentence again, men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. Because you mentioned Haiti. I mean, if you're taking a cynical view of history, like, again, someone from our side would celebrate the successful slave revolt in Haiti and what it did. But from the other side, and when you're looking at it from like an imperialist perspective or anything else, They'll just say, well, look at Haiti now. It's not a quote-unquote successful country. And that's because, you know, the French have made them pay reparations ever since that revolt happened. Depending on whose side of history you're looking at, they're going to write it a different way. And it just goes back to the quote about victors write the history. And I think that's what Marx is really struggling with, is he wants to give the benefit of history to the working class, but that's just not the reality. That's not what occurred. From 1848 to the moment he's writing, there was not a successful proletarian revolt. He wants to understand why. So going on. Marx takes aim at the utopian socialists in this quote from chapter one. Quote, as always, weakness had taken refuge in a belief in miracles, believed the enemy to be overcome when he was only conjured away in imagination, and lost all understanding of the present in an inactive glorification of the future that was in store for it, in the deeds it had in mind, but did not want to carry out yet. So the radicals of the Second French Revolution articulated positions on the left, but Marx here accused them of being false prophets, or at least utopians, without an understanding of the structures they acted within. This is, in part, the argument of the parliamentary cooperation of ideals. But Marx here also may be thinking of the utopian socialists who, according to him, never understand the material conditions of the revolution to begin with. Is there really a difference between the two in practical terms? Or is Marx making a completely different argument here? So what is the role of utopian thinking in a revolution? He seems to want to argue that it actually diffuses the possibilities of a revolution if we're not completely realistic about our goals. But how do we know what's realistic until it's either won or fought for? I feel like a broken record just coming back to the fucking tailism versus commandism thing, but that seems to be always what it comes down to. It's like, you can say all the utopian things that you want, and that will absolutely expand the imagination of the populist if you can reach them, and if it seems like something they're amenable to. But if it's too far ahead, then you get the reaction, and if that takes precedence in the culture, then that's what's going to happen. And I feel like that's what we're kind of all fearing right now. It's like we're fearing that we are seeing the reaction take hold when you see like the anti-LGBTQ uh, equating them with rumors and like literally resurrecting the 
Nazi propaganda from World War II about protocols and shit and all that, the obvious lies that they are resurrecting. But yeah, I mean, that's a genuine fear. Like, I don't want to say it's, it's obviously not the fault of any marginalized communities who are asking for too much because they're literally just asking for basic human rights. But it's just that's kind of the reality that we live in. It's like even that was too much to ask from this fascist genocidal country. If you choose to ally yourself with the right with a certain faction within parliament, you have to be very aware and remain cognizant and strategize around the aftermath as it pertains to what that parliamentarian alliance looks like in terms of what the actual class and material allegiances are, right? Like you can't let yourself into a position where you're deluded to the point where you just think, oh, these people are my friends now and they're going to come along with me for the entire ride if that's not actually where their material interests lay, right? Like Because we have examples of like many communist movements working with different bourgeois nationalist movements, especially in the colonial world, right? But, you know, the successful ones knew when to kind of break that off or at least had to fight their way out of it at some point. And I think it was just this idea that, oh, well, everybody's going to come along with us now, but like this failure to recognize those material interests are a form of utopianism, failure to take into account the actual reality around you that ultimately left the proletariat in a position to be crushed, right? And I think it goes into this whole idea of like, defense of the revolution, defense of the gains afterward. It's not enough just to like get to this certain point and say, okay, the rest is going to take care of itself. You have to actively protect, defend, and advance. And that requires constant mobilization. You can't just rest on your laurels and you have to be prepared from the onset to deal with these problems. That's all true. And it, I think, builds in tension with exactly what Mike is saying as well. Because running a revolution is not easy work. You never really understand what's possible until it occurs. Because there is a sort of nihilism that can also take over the negative sort of nihilism where you sort of lose hope in the concept of revolution itself. This political work is so taxing. It's so fraught. It's so heavy with failure that you can come to the conclusion that it's just never going to work. And I believe Marx is actually struggling with those thoughts as he's writing this, because he saw what he saw was the literal breakout of revolution across all of Europe. And within five years, it's all crushed and nothing has gotten better. In fact, you could see things getting worse actively. And it's hard to know where we're at in the trajectory of history right now, but things do not appear to be getting better. Not to accuse any of us of saying this, but even to say that things are inevitably going to get to the point where revolution has to occur, that could be considered utopian talk unless the revolution occurs. The successful revolution is not inevitable, right? Right. It's about strategizing around the conditions that you have. And I think just to kind of cement and kind of reiterate where we're at in terms of where Marx is thinking about this. I mean, you have to remember that a lot of the strategy, even at that time, because again, we're still talking about the remnants of feudalism and monarchy being thrown out in a lot of places. And it differed from place to place in Europe. But I mean, there was a lot of places where this idea of like a bourgeois and proletarian alliance to overthrow monarchism around this time period was kind of looked at as a potential strategy to at least overthrow like the primary contradiction as it would have been seen at that time. That 
bourgeois capitalism would have been a progressive step in that. Like, cause again, Marx has this line about like, we'll throw this off and then it'll immediately be followed by a proletarian revolution in Germany. Right. So like that almost leads to this conversation where you're having this discussion and strategizing around alliances with certain factions. And it almost seems like a retrospective of like, Hey, did we imbibe too deeply into this potential alliance and rely too much on like our temporary bourgeois allies in this situation a little bit. It's hard because I, I, this actually reminds me of a conversation we had about a different reading where we understand that these socialist countries need to go through a certain liberalization in order to get to the final communism, right? But exactly how much exploitation needs to be involved in that transition is something that's incredibly difficult and becomes a point of contention within the parties that govern those nations. Even in places where the revolution was more or less successful, these issues don't disappear. They continue yeah. to grow and they continue to be problems that are dealt with on the state level rather than within the revolutionary cadre, or rather they're part of the revolutionary cadre within the state. Well, I mean, that's why it's utopian to think that like China doesn't have any class contradictions. They do. They have to. Right. The revolution doesn't happen overnight. Right. It takes generations. In the same way that it took generations for liberal capitalism to become natural, to become ahistorical. Yeah. And, and I guess my point is, is that like, if you can generalize what he's talking about here, is that like the utopians would fall into a place where they think that the class struggle ends once something actually succeeds, right? Where to be successful and to maintain success, you have to be constantly be aware of these contradictions, constantly aware of people's material interests and constantly pushing things forward for the advancement of the proletarian cause. In the United States, there was a mass movement for the abolition of slavery. It was huge in the American Northeast. They had a newspaper, I believe, called The Abolitionist that was publishing literally weekly. It was an incredibly well-read, well-distributed paper of action. And the last edition was published at the end of the Civil War, and the man closed it down and stopped publication. The reality is abolition took decades, generations, arguably still hasn't occurred since that time. But if you have that mindset that something like that can change because of one war, because of one act, because of one great man, it's just such great folly to think that things are going to wind down. That's simply just because one nation has maybe conquered a land over another. I mean, that's one of the great arguments towards the South losing the war, but winning the peace. This ideology doesn't just evaporate. It just adjusts in the same way that anything will adjust to new material conditions. So they can't own slaves? Well, there's a reason the sharecropping system grew immediately afterwards. You need to constantly be fighting for that revolution. So I think we're going to wind down today by considering one of the last things that Marx writes in chapter one. Marx warned against the alliance of the proletariat along with the bourgeois parliamentarians and reformers when he wrote, quote, as soon as one of the social strata above it gets into revolutionary ferment, the proletariat enters into an alliance with it and so shares all the defeats with the different parties suffer, one after another. But these subsequent blows become the weaker, the greater the surface of society over which they are distributed. The more important leaders of the proletariat in the assembly and in the press successively fall victim to the courts, and ever more equivocal figures come to head it. In part, it throws itself into doctrinaire experiments, exchange banks, and workers' associations. Hence, 
into a movement in which it renounces the revolutionizing of the old world by means of the latter's own great combined resources and seeks, rather, to achieve its salvation behind society's back in private fashion within its limited conditions of existence and hence necessarily suffers shipwreck. What was left of the proletariat leadership after the May 15th ousters indeed had legislative achievements, including laws enshrining, quote, exchange banks and, quote, workers' associations. But the method by which this assembly gained these concessions, quote, behind society's back in private fashion, led to the further shipwreck of the farce. Without a revolution in the structure of society, piecemeal legislative change might only result in further reactionary anti-parliamentary sentiment. At the same time, one might argue the average worker benefited from this legislative achievement, however short-lived and paltry. At this point in the farce, what is the point of so-called revolutionary parties in power? Does it serve any purpose? And I'm thinking specifically in terms of the New Deal, just because that's what we've been going over the past few weeks. But it could just as well be led to what is AOC's purpose in Congress? Should she be fighting for legislation? What would we want a revolutionary to do if they were elected to Congress? I feel like my main gripe with liberals is that they're just not willing to be as radical as the right is. Because the right is like willing to at least pitch, if not seriously try to implement, some really radical measure. I don't know if they openly talk about genocide, but they definitely talk about it. But like, I just want to at least, can we just have the fucking conversation about re-education camps? Can we just talk about using the FEMA camps to get all the Trump supporters back to reality? Like, just start having the national conversation about the fact that 50% of the U.S. is literally in a cult. And until we can do that, that's what I think AOC's purpose should be. Like if she's going to be the sock dem revolutionary girl boss, then that's what her role should be is like, just start talking about the re-education camps so that maybe Hunter Biden, when he gets elected can actually implement them <laughs> walk so he can run to expand upon that. And I think you're actually hitting like a critical point, Mike, but it's like the point that she should continue to agitate. Right. And I would extend it further to say that the purpose of someone like her or someone in like a revolutionary party in power should be is to keep people mobilized, right? Going back to what Marx said about they kind of get embedded in these systems because you haven't overthrown and uprooted the actual fundamentals, but that these deals, these formations happen behind the backs of society, right? Meaning that they don't happen via the popular input and the engagement of the people. At least that's how I'm reading it, right? So again, the role of someone like an AOC or like a Bernie or what I think a lot of people thought even Obama might have been back in 2008 would be to keep people engaged, right? Like Bernie was always saying that like, if, if I'm going to be here, we're going to continue to throw rallies so we can continue to put pressure because it's all about you guys. Now, again, I don't want to really get into like whether Bernie would have or could have actually done that. But if that's the question, then I think that's the point, right? is that like politics needs to be driven by the masses and needs to have the masses input to actually affect change. And there always needs to be the threat of mass action. And leaders can serve a purpose here, again, as we always talk about, as representatives of that movement and somebody that helps keep that momentum moving forward, pushing as hard as it possibly can. So I think that's what could be like the situation of like some kind of radical getting into Congress here, right? There was a recent article by Anders Lee describing Elmer Benson, who was a one-term Minnesota governor who literally used 
the National Guard in order to attack pro-business organizers who are attempting to disrupt and create strike-breaking. So there are actual powers of state that can be leveraged once a revolutionary individual gets into those positions. Like It's really easy for us to dismiss somebody like uh, Ocasio-Cortez because in reality, one congressperson really can't do very much in the same way that it's easy to dismiss Bernie Sanders because one senator really can't do very much. But if somehow a revolutionary, let's say governor, gets elected, there are actual levers of power that still exist on the state level. So I just think it, it just means that there are different ways that revolutionaries can behave within parliamentary, within congressional situations. And I think it always depends on, as Nick was saying, constantly leveraging their popularity among the people. Like there's a reason they're in those positions. I would just say to kind of extend my point and to piggyback off of you, we need to broaden our horizons, darlings, right? Like, again, like it's not just about <laughs> Ocasio-Cortez making one single vote as a House member, right? Like just the single action that she can perform as a function of a parliamentarian. It's about like what I'm saying, being fucking part of the movements, being on the picket line, being at these rallies in a real fucking way. You know what I mean? Not just showing up for a photo op or, you know, to pay lip service and keep up your social media branding and shit like that. Be there, be present, be real. And we know that's not going to be enough to double down on that. But again, if you want to be part of the movement, be part of the movement. Right. That's just to wind it back. This isn't about Ocasio-Cortez. That would be the great man theory to assume that somebody can get elected into these positions and suddenly make change. The fact is that she is one member of something larger. Could be could become one member of something larger, depending on the actions that these individuals take. Even as they live in those halls of power, they have to remember that they're only one among many in a movement that's keeping them or got them there. Nick, I don't know if you came from quite the same background that I did, but there's definitely a reason that I went the direction with my podcast where I tried to be like the shock jock leftist podcast. It's because I grew up on like ONA, and I remember specifically like Patrice O'Neill, when Obama got elected, he was like, because he, I think he only lived a couple of years after Obama got elected. He was like, I thought I would have had a white slave by now. And I thought that was one of the funniest things he ever said. And I loved him so much for it because that was the difference between Obama's rhetoric and his actual actions. It's just like, he really talked the talk, but did not walk the walk, as we all know. Yeah. No, he was a faux populist by any definition of the word. Absolutely. Yeah, that was like the, the fear, right? That the fear of like conservative America, that he was going to be this radical and the hope of a lot of people that got out to vote for him, that he would kind of continue to, you know, push people. Right. And I think that shattered the delusions for people and exposed what the system actually is, you know, and that's why we're all sitting here tonight at some level. I think, you know, I was always a cynical kind of dickhead when I was younger. So I never <laughs> liked Obama. The moment where I knew that Obama was a fraud in my childish brain was when he nominated Joe Biden as his vice presidential running mate. Because that was when my relative, whose politics I hated, decided he was going to vote for Obama because he knew then that Obama was not really as radical as people said he was because he had Joe yeah. Biden as his vice president. It turns out he was right. I think it was on one of those audit podcasts, Nick, but um, one of Josh Olson's friends was talking, like, I, it was, I, I forget who it was, had, had interviewed Obama had gone back to his wife and said, like, 
this guy is amazing. He's, he's what we need. He's like the greatest politician ever. He's like, you have to listen to that interview. And she said, I don't want to listen to it. I want, do you have a transcript? I want to read mm-hmm. it. And she said, and he said, yeah, I've got it here. And she read it and she said, he hasn't said anything. Yeah. <laughs> He's just saying what you want to hear. He was probably like the perfect politician, but he never really said or did anything. And, they, and the guy said when he actually read it back, he was like, holy shit, that guy fooled me for the two hours I interviewed Based him. on like pure charisma and presentation. Because, I mean, you can't deny, yeah. like for all our critiques, you can't deny that the guy has fucking charisma in spades. And, but again, like that, that goes back to this whole idea of like why we need to be aware of like what material reality is, right? From like actually reading the content of a script to like what this guy's actions are in practice, you know, and divorcing it from the, the presence and, and the image. But like, you know, liberals love to be soothed and we need to move past that. Obama had my now Trump voting stepmother totally hooked. Like when yeah. he was on Oprah, my stepmother was totally in on Obama. And then I think by the time he actually ran in 08, she was still on the fence. And then by 2012, she was convinced he was the Antichrist because of my dad and his Trump signs in the front yard. And now my, my stepmother literally thinks that Candace Owens is cool and good. And I'm just like, <laughs> I, I, we don't speak for obvious reasons. So I mean, that's like, I mean, just look at how historically blue centers of power, union bases shifted from Obama to Trump. Right. It's because like the populist messaging was seen to be bullshit. He wasn't coming to help like the working class and he didn't. My father was a Reagan Republican and he fell in love in 2008 with the Democratic Party. He really loved them because of a spry, young, charismatic person named Hillary Clinton. (laughs) He was behind her all the way to the end and he hated Barack Obama. That sounds Reaganite. But what is even more fascinating is as 2016 comes along, he shared with me that he loved Bernie Sanders and loved the message that he was saying. He just couldn't vote for him because he said it would never happen. Part of it being that he didn't believe a Jewish person could ever be president, whatever that means. But also just he didn't think that if he got into the presidency that he would last, that he would be kicked out, that he would be assassinated, that something would happen and nothing would happen to the benefit of those policies that he was pushing. That in fact, somebody like Hillary Clinton could get it done. And that's why he voted in 2016 for his favorite politician. I mean, there's a lot to say there about the powers of charisma, but somebody like Bernie Sanders really, if we get down to it, he's been saying the same message Forever. There's not much nuance to it. There's not much flower to it. It's just pure ideology. Or it's dressed as pure ideology. I'm sure that's part of the message as well. And there is something that people were drawn to in that movement. I don't want to say too many good things about an individual great man senator from Vermont, but there is something to be said that charisma is not everything, that there needs to be actual packaging behind it in order for movements to latch on into form. And that, I think, was the lesson learned from Obama and why Bernie Sanders seemed to be the next great man. And one thing maybe I can add just to kind of try to thread it back into some of the themes that we've been talking about before, right? But like, we also have to recognize now on the left, 
that the Bernie movement is done. And I know a lot of us have, but I think there is still a segment that like, you know, would harken back and probably line up to support like a Bernie Sanders run at this point if it happened. But that's done, right? But it is still a part of this process of, you know, for all his problems, but it is still that whole movement is still part and parcel with like the growth in, you know, leftist organizations from, you know, like your DSAs to your PSLs. That was part of that whole movement and his messaging and the movement that people got involved with are part of that whole process. And it's tied up into the resurgence of unions, right? So on a mass people's basis, again, this is just this dialectical process that we're going through in America, right? Where we have these figures and these movements kind of rise and fall. But again, there's no going back now. We have to take the lessons that we learned from that movement, the failures of it, what Bernie Sanders was, what he wasn't, what we would want to see better out of someone like him in a movement that he, you know, that grew up behind him and move on from there and keep pushing shit forward. I mean, the question keeps coming up, who is the next Bernie Sanders? And that's just the wrong question. Absolutely. The thing is, we just have to keep building that desire, building that momentum towards a sea change in American politics, towards that revolution. And from there, if that movement building is successful, the sort of watching your dimes and your pennies will take care of your dollars. You don't need to worry about those individual issues in the same way if you're worried about the small things already. Yeah, I don't want to know who the next Bernie Sanders is. I want to know who's the next Brother Underground. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there, boys, huh? Just want to say that I'm glad we decided off the jump to uh, break this into <laughs> at least two, maybe three, given the rate that we're going. Um, but, you know, one, I think it speaks to, you know, how we always go, because I think we have good conversations, but two, also just like, the importance and the relevance of this text. I mean, as we're doing a lot in this Mark series, we're not struggling a lot with the specific dynamics, the specific language of Marx. We're using it as a springboard to apply it to politics today, which again, I think is the most useful way to look at this kind of stuff. So Mike, as always, thanks for joining, man. We always love what you bring to the conversation. Makes a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, the whole time I was thinking, I don't think there's any other group of people I could have this fun of a conversation about 200 year old text with. So appreciate you guys yeah, having absolutely, me. Absolutely buddy. Anytime. And we'll be back with more Mark soon. Levi, as always, thanks for putting it together. Stevie, thanks for being here and adding everything that you do that everybody knows and loves. And, uh, thanks for listening. Leave us a review. Um, we love you. Solidarity. We'll talk to y'all next time. Next episode. We'll actually get into the history itself. We'll broach the lumpen proletariat and we will bring in, the Marxists. Adios, Paisanos. Ah, I got him. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>